Dustin, thank you. I also want to thank uh, Seth for the, the words he shared on humility. Some of you experienced humility this morning as you arrived at church and realized that you were right on time for the second service, not the first service. Kind of one of those dope moments uh, in life, but uh, we're glad you're here nonetheless. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. Find your way to verse 9, and we'll begin there here in just a moment. First, a brief explainer on why I chose this passage for my sermon this morning. It's always a little bit difficult. It's a very prayerful process in figuring out uh, what to preach on when you just have one or two Sundays. You don't want to appear as if you're on a soapbox or anything like that. It's too short a time to get any, into any extended series or a book of the Bible uh, type of study, that kind of thing. But I chose this because we're just three weeks away from Easter, April 1st. Every preacher everywhere is trying to figure out how to work in April Fools into their Easter sermon uh, this year. But because we're not a church that gives much recognition to the broader church calendar, uh, if we're not careful, we can let Easter sneak up on us. Oftentimes, it's the candy display at Target that gets us clued into Easter, maybe before uh, the church manages to. And so at Faith Bible, we've been singing that song, Death Was Arrested over the past few weeks, because that's a song we want to do at Easter, and we think it helps prepare our hearts during this season. It's a great song. Uh, we've got the Easter schedule in the bulletin. Seth mentioned it during his announcement. We want you to be prepared for how things are going to look on that day. We've begun asking people to populate our 8.30 and our 11 o'clock services because we know that on Easter Sunday, this service is going to be jam-packed. Uh, and speaking of that, we are planning a more sufficient overflow uh, space in our fellowship hall because we know that that need will be there on Easter Sunday. And then starting today, we are beginning to choose sermon texts that will lead us into Easter as well. Now, this text doesn't seem very Eastery on the surface, but where this passage is situated in the book of Luke is on Jesus' final trip to the city of Jerusalem. So this scene is taking place just a couple of weeks prior to the triumphant entry, just a couple of weeks before Jesus' arrest and trial. He, our Savior, is just weeks away from a Roman execution that he knows full well is going to be brutal and bloody and cruel. And I know Mark is preaching on Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's doing that next week. He's going to do that with actual footage from the garden, uh, footage that I think he's filming today as the tour group that he's leading arrives in Jerusalem. He's preaching on the cross the week after that, and then Easter Sunday, he will, of course, speak on the resurrection. So today, how can I build some momentum as we head toward Easter? Well, let's read together Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, I'll read to verse 14. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. May he write its blessing upon our hearts today. What we've just read is a parable. Some scholars actually think this scene happened, that, was, that it was an, an actual occurrence in the temple at some point in Jesus' life. I don't know. It tells us it's a parable. I'm just going to go with that. And as you've read much of the gospel accounts, or if you've read much of the gospel accounts, you know that Jesus employed parables in his preaching and teaching really, really frequently. It can be argued that uh, the parable, this, this form of address, it's his preferred method of instruction. And as you read the gospel accounts, particularly the book of Luke, he almost always used parables to address some socio-religious problem that was deeply embedded in first century Jewish life. And it's interesting how transcendent, transcendent these messages, these addresses to these problems actually are. They tend to move forward and apply to today's church as well. For instance, other famous parables. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan. That was addressing the Pharisees, their complete lack of care and love for their neighbors. They saw themselves as ethnically and religiously superior. They despised all non-Jews. So Jesus delivers that parable. Then there's the parable of the rich fool, and that was to address people who thought solely and completely about worldly treasures. It's an address of materialism, essentially. And then the parables in Luke 15, the coin, the sheep, the prodigal son, stories used to demonstrate how important the recovery and the restoration of the lost are to the heart of God. And parables are, are beautiful because they do a significantly better job of communicating truth than a bare statement of fact is able to do. I mean, if I were to tell you that God hates spiritual pride, you would cognitively understand what that means. But to hear this story told in this way, your understanding is taken to new heights. We like stories because they cause our imaginations to get involved. They help our hearts arrive at the truth, which is obviously very important. And Jesus does something here in this parable that he doesn't always do. He tells us exactly who he is addressing and therefore exactly what he is addressing. Verse 9, it says, He is addressing some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus is directing this story to, to those who think their sins smell better than the others, to those who look down on those who sin differently than they do. You don't do that, do you? You don't tend to hold certain, certain people or certain groups of people in contempt because they sin differently than you do, do you? When Frederick the Great, who was king of Prussia, when he visited a prison and talked with each of the inmates, there were endless tales of, of innocence, of misunderstood motives, of exploitation. Finally, the king stopped at the cell of a convict who had remained silent. Well, remarked Frederick, I suppose you're an innocent victim too. 
No, sir, I'm not, replied the man. I'm guilty, and I deserve my punishment. Turning to the warden, the king said, Here, release this rascal before he corrupts all of the other innocent people in here. This confession of guilt, this is an expression of humility. And because of verse 9, we can say with confidence that what Jesus hopes to communicate is a rich lesson on spiritual pride. This is my second sermon in five days on the subject of pride. Didn't plan for this. God, I think, is just wanting to show me some things. And as I thought a lot about pride over the last few days, I went back and reread a section of C.S. Lewis's great book, Mere Christianity. And if you've read that classic book, you recall that in the eighth chapter, Lewis outlines what he refers to as the great sin. And in addressing spiritual pride, he writes this. It's a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. The devil is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to have your blisters cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So we're told who he's addressing and what he's addressing. And as he gets into the telling of the parable, he also gives us the setting, which is the temple in Jerusalem. As well as telling us about two principal characters, two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. These men who have entered the temple to pray. And before I get into the outline, I should just highlight that the temple activity that Jesus is setting this scene within, in the temple, there was all manner of of social and religious activity. So it's a big, big complex in Jesus' day, around 35 acres. Don't think that the normal temple setup was, was to focus on any one activity. Certain courts and sections were given to certain purposes. And from what we know of the normal first century temple, there were daily sacrifices. Two lambs a day were killed by the priests in the temple. These sacrifices, they corresponded with a time of prayer. The first at 9 a.m. and the other at 3 p.m. So the gates of the temple would open at 9 a.m. People would come in to pray. They'd pray as the sacrifice was being offered, and then they would leave. This would happen again in the evening at 3 p.m. It wasn't a required corporate gathering, but it was there, and if you wanted to, you could go in and pray. And as the smoke uh, went up off the face of the altar, and as the incense rose to heaven, so your prayers were to rise with them. The other detail that we receive in the opening two verses concerning the social st- is concerning the social standing of these two men. We have one who's a Pharisee, and the other one who's a tax collector. And so in your notes this morning, we'll first look at the pride of this Pharisee and then the contrasting penitence of the publican, and then I'll conclude with the pronouncement and the promise that we see in the final verse. In order to correctly understand this parable, we must consider how the Pharisees were regarded in first century Jewish life. While while we look down on them because of their hypocrisy and, and their legalism, in that day, These are the guys with the white hats. These are the good guys. They didn't put them in the category that we put them in. They're not quite there in Jesus' assessment of their spiritual 
condition, whitewashed tombs and broods of vipers and so on. There were only a few thousand of them at a time. They're, of course, known for their careful observance of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They also followed something called the Mishnah, which were rabbinical writings that helped explain how to obey the Torah. So there might be several chapters in the Mishnah that were devoted just to one verse of the Torah. So volume after volume after volume on how to obey the law. And on top of that, they followed something called the Talmud, which was a commentary on the Mishnah. They were the Bible guys, religious and politically conservative. They believed in miracles. They believed in a future resurrection, highly respected and honored because of their commitment to piety. However, their devotion to all this extra biblical material, it made them architects of an elaborate system of self-righteousness. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So was the Apostle Paul before his conversion. The term Pharisee actually means separate which that fits perfectly this man's described posture. The text says he's standing off by himself. He is, he is separate. He does not want to be near the common worshiper or, or near the potentially sinful person who might also be praying. He has separated himself. This would ensure cleanliness. It would, it would also draw attention to him. He was not in the throng of normal visitors to the temple. He was distinct from them, and that's the way he liked it. It's interesting how this by-himself description is so fitting for all of those who have spiritual pride. Those who think their manner of life is superior, they are often off by themselves, aren't they? They cannot tolerate the impiety of the crowd. They cannot be associated with the, with the slightest hint of theological imprecision. Their purity is threatened by the spiritually messy. And so they stay off by themselves, cloistered alone or in really small groups. When you spend more energy managing and sanitizing the potentially sinful things around you, rather than intentionally battling the selfish flesh within you, You'll often think worse of others and think better of yourself. So up on this kind of self-made stage where he was distinct from the crowd, he begins to pray. Let's look at this prayer. And when we read this prayer, we, we immediately smell self-righteousness in it. And Jesus intends for us to smell self-righteousness in it. But Jesus knew that his original audience would not have immediately recoiled at this prayer because there are going to be qualities in this prayer that they would esteem and admire. First of all, they would have admired his morality. Notice verse 11. He thanks God that he is not an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer like the tax collector. He's identifying himself as a, a moral man. He doesn't rip people off in business. He doesn't cheat on his taxes. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He hasn't betrayed his country like the tax collector has, this man who's working for the Romans and, and skimming off the top. He's saying, I'm a moral man. And, and the people in Jesus' audience would have said, oh, very admirable, so admirable. What a guy. And then he says, I'm not only a moral man, but I'm a religious man. Look what he says. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'll explain the tithing practice first. Tithe means tenth. And Pharisees, they, they would give a tenth of their income to, 
the temporal treasury or to other religious activities. But they would also give a tenth of everything they purchased or were given as well. So if they bought five pounds of barley, they would give as a sacrifice about a half a pound of it. Excuse me. If they bought 20 ounces of wine, they would give a wine offering of two ounces. That's what it meant by tithing off of all all, all that I get. Not just the income, but then anything that I acquire on top of that, I go ahead and tithe a tenth of that as well. As for fasting, the Pharisees, they dedicated two days a week to the practice of fasting. No food, no water, a thorough fast, two days a week, usually Monday and Thursday. Now, the law only required one fast a year at the Day of Atonement. So these guys are fasting a hundred times more than the law required them to. And they would let you know about it, too. Sort of like someone who does CrossFit. You're going to know about it whether you like it or not. Or someone who posts on social media that they're giving up social media for Lent, you know? It's like, I don't think you understand how this works. (laughs) Matthew 6 says that these Pharisees, they would intentionally look gloomy and sullen so that people would know that they were fasting. That same passage, it calls them hypocrites. And one reason for that is because they were using fasting as this spiritual merit badge. They wanted to be highly regarded because of their commitment to the fast. But the purpose for fasting that's prescribed in Leviticus, it was to be a form of grieving over your sin. So in an ironic twist, the Pharisees were using something that was supposed to signify mourning over their sin as a way to appear more holy in and of themselves. See how wicked that is? But notice the thing that's entirely missing from this prayer. There's no sense of sin or need whatsoever. And by the end of the story, Jesus wants that to be the thing that is screaming in your eardrums. There's not the slightest sense that this man has anything that he needs to be forgiven for. His thanks to God is all about what a great guy he is. There's just no sense of need at all. Now, maybe you remember that another religious man had come to Jesus once and asked Jesus a question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, have you kept the commandments? And he responded, I've kept all the commandments, and instead of giving getting into an argument with him about whether he's kept the commandments or not, what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, well, you still lack something. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And what was Jesus actually doing with that command? He was showing the man that he hadn't kept the commandments. Because what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What's, what's the uh, Shema that we looked at last week? It's that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, there's nothing in this world that you can love and serve more than you love and serve God. And Jesus is putting his finger right on that man's problem. His problem was that he loved money, and Jesus knew it. And you remember what the young man ultimately said. He said, well, I can't do it. So despite his wealth, despite his personal morality, he was lacking. He had a need. And he didn't see it. And so there's no sense of need 
in this Pharisee's prayer. How many times does this guy squeeze the first person pronoun I into this short prayer? After he thanks God, knows what he says. He thanks God that I am not like these other men. I fast twice a week. I give the tithes of, of all that I get. I, I, I. This is a celebration of self, is it not? It lacks a sense of need, need for forgiveness or anything else, and it has, it has this self-centered pride just permeating through it. And it's those two features, these are what Jesus is after in this story. The Pharisee's trust is in himself. He's a moral man, he's a religious man, but there's not a shred of spiritual humility. There's no express need, and Jesus is saying, that is a very dangerous place to be. In contrast to the Pharisees, tax collectors were considered the lowlifes of society. Moving on to the next point. They worked for the pagan Romans. They owned these tax franchises. And taxes, there was not like a set rate. It was set by the tax collector. He could collect whatever he wanted to collect. And this was a great setup for him because he could pass on to the Romans whatever might be required, and, could, and he could also keep an exorbitant sum for himself, obviously hated for the practice. They're not allowed to give testimony in court because their, their word was considered worthless. In this story, to the original audience, the, the publican, the tax collector, he would have been considered the villain. This audience would, would boo and hiss as he entered into the scene. The Pharisee is the most religious, respected, and revered man, while the tax collector is the most despised, disrespected, and despicable man. I read this week that a devout Jew was to do three things if he accidentally touched a tax collector. Three things. First, spit instantly to express your disgust for touching him. Then he would go home and burn his clothes Finally, he would take a scalding bath to purify himself. Just for accidentally touching, bumping into one of these tax guys. So in light of that, let's talk about his presence in the temple. You know, publicans, tax collectors, they're not, they're not allowed in, in the synagogue. They're not allowed in the law courts. They're not allowed in the temple. But here, Jesus puts him in the temple. This guy's presence in the temple, this is a scandalous thing. Something that would have been deeply resented by all who had come to worship and pray there. They didn't want to run into a tax collector. There's a huge risk for this guy to take. And then there's his posture or position. Positionally, according to the story, Jesus is telling us that he's, he's far off. Maybe he's in one of the outer courts. Maybe the courts of the Gentiles. He's, he's far off. Now, the Pharisee was by himself because of his self-righteous piety. This guy is far off because of his condemnable place in the society. And before you even get to the one-sentence prayer, look at what Jesus says about his posture. He, verse 13, will not even lift his eyes up to heaven. And I don't know this for sure, but I have a suspicion that Luke 18.13 is the reason why Christians for the last 2,000 years have bowed our heads and closed our eyes in prayer. I say that because the normal stance for prayer in the Old Testament is what? It's like this. This is the normal stance. 
eyes open, head turned to heaven, arms outstretched. Maybe you remember Moses praying that, that uh, when he's praying, the people of Israel would come and they would, they would hold his arms up as he prays to God and seeks his strength. This is exactly how the Pharisee would pray, just like this, eyes open, head turned toward heaven, arms outstretched, waiting for God to, to pour out blessing and favor and, and whatever else. But this tax collector, he's, he's bowing his head. He won't even lift up his eyes. He beats his chest, which is an act of penitence. And he prays what? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's unpack these seven words, six words in the Greek, one of the shortest prayers in the Bible, but, but also one of the most profound. Consider first just the beginning and the ending of the prayer. Let's eliminate the middle. The beginning and the ending, the words God and me, a sinner. This is what John Calvin wrote about in the Institutes of the Christian Religion when he said the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves go together. That is, we never have one without the other. To know God as the sovereign God of the universe is to know ourselves as his subject and, re and in rebellion against him. To know God in his absolute holiness is to know ourselves as sinners who run from such holiness. To know God as supremely wise is to know ourselves as prone to foolishness and in desperate need of true wisdom. To know him as love is to see ourselves as wholly loved, though terribly unlovely. And since God is the only standard for by which those things can be measured, we do not know anything properly unless we know him. And we don't know him unless we know him as he's revealed himself to be, which is where we go. We go to the Bible. And in any true encounter with God, it is his holiness set up against our sin that most strikes us in worship. This is one of the problems with, Pharisee, with, with the Pharisee. He only sets himself up against other people, extortioners and adulterers and tax collectors. So in the court of human comparison, this guy looks sterling. The publican, however, has set himself up against the righteousness of of God, and that's the thing that causes him to cry out for mercy. If somebody is just comparing themselves to, to other people, they will never arrive at the truth of the gospel. They will never arrive at their need for mercy. If they see God, though, high and lifted up, understanding his righteousness and his holiness and the standard by which he's delivered, they will cry out as Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man. Reminds me of the words of John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is, which is the best-selling book in the world outside of the Bible. He said, when I saw John Bunyan as God saw John Bunyan, I did not say that I was a sinner. I said that I was sin from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. What a confession there by Bunyan. One of the most popular songs in the world right now, and consequently one of the most popular songs in my house right now, is the song This Is Me by, uh, well, it's part of the Greatest Showman soundtrack, if you've seen that movie. It's a rousing song. It's a good song. Uh, we, we enjoy it a lot. And essentially, if you've not heard it, it's a song about the outcast who 
comes into the mainstream. Someone who, who, who leaves the shadows and says to the world, you have to accept me as I am. This is who I really am. I can't be ashamed anymore. And, and, it's, and it's a great song. I don't want to belittle the song too much. But within the song is this sense of pride. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to be something I'm not. This is me. Take me or leave me. Well, you compare that song to something like Just As I Am. Just as I am without one plea, but thou, but that thou blood was shed for me. This is me doesn't come with any sort of need. It comes with a need that you need to meet. Well, just as I am says, God, I need you to meet a need that I could never meet myself. And here's where we need to remind ourselves that, that Jesus is the one telling the story because there's a word used here that unpacks this entire parable. It's the word there used for mercy. So now we're in the middle of the prayer. There's a more everyday kind of word in the Greek that could have been used for mercy, the word eliaison. We might describe someone with a, with a gift of mercy using that term, but that's not what Jesus employs in this parable. He uses a form of the word halaskamai, which means to make atonement. The noun form of the word would have been the word used for mercy seat. So literally what's being said here is, God, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. And as you know, the mercy seat was the place on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this gold-covered wood box, three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, kept in the temples, kept within the Holy of Holies, a place that the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on top of the ark was this mercy seat. Within the ark, you had the stone tablets of the law. So within the ark, you had the broken law of God. And what filled the room that it was kept in was God's awesome holy presence. So in between these two things, the broken law of God and God's holy awesome presence was this mercy seat. And that was the place that the high priest would take the blood of the slain, the, the slain goat. So through, through a transferring prayer, the sins of the, of the people would be laid on the goat, and the priest would sacrifice the animal, take its blood into the Holy of Holies, and pour it over the mercy seat. Year after year after year after year, this would be done. Therefore, blood was put in between God and the sin of man. And at this action, God looked down and, and saw not the broken law, but he saw the blood of this innocent sacrifice. This prayer then by by this publican, this is a visual and verbal expression of the way salvation works, that between God and me, a sinner, comes the mercy seat. Between God and me comes this sacrifice of atonement. This sacrifice that's needed for me to be right with God. 1 John 4.10 says, Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement, the halaskami, the mercy seat is what that verse is pointing to. Or 1 John 2.2, 2, he, Jesus, is our mercy seat. The tax collector is saying very profoundly, God, treat me as one who comes based on the shed blood on the mercy seat. The blood that's an offering for my sin. And what you and I know is that in a short time, Jesus, the one who's telling this parable, 
he is going to go and he's going to voluntarily offer himself on the cross to save this tax collector and anyone who would trust in him and in him alone for salvation. So we have the shadow of the cross laying heavy across this parable. Jesus is both the storyteller and the sacrifice. So that understanding of this man's prayer makes the closing verse of the passage make a ton of sense. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Why? Was it because he was a really bad guy who simply knew he was a really bad guy and so God let him off the hook for being a bad guy? No, it was because he appealed to God for the wrath-averting sacrifice, for the atonement blood to cover his sin and his trust in the work of God, it made him right with God. It justified him. In the simplest terms, it made him just as if he'd never sinned. That's what justification means. Which is why in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, it says that we have been justified by his blood. Christians, those who put their hope and their trust in Jesus, you have been justified. You've been made right with God by his blood. It's just as if you'd never sinned. There's the work that was done. God's not being asked to bend the rules for a sinner. He's being asked to do whatever is required to save a sinner to the uttermost. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on this passage. He says, think of it. Jesus... God in human flesh, the Holy One, the perfect sinless one, says that in one moment an extreme sinner can be pronounced instantly righteous without any works, without any merit, without any worthiness, without any law-keeping, without any moral achievement, spiritual accomplishment, or ritual. There's no time lapse, no penance, no works, no ceremony, no, no sacrament, no meritorious activity whatsoever. Nothing to do. Instant declaration of justification on the spot, permanent. Wow, how can that be? Because the only righteousness that God will accept is perfect righteousness. And since you can't earn it, he gives it as a gift to the penitent who trusts in him. That's the gospel. All the sinner ever does is receive the gift coming in penitent trust, pleading for atonement to be made to satisfy the wrath of God against his sin. And I suppose that's, or excuse me, I suppose what's really striking is that there's a comma after justified in verse 14. Not, not a period, but a, a comma. And after the comma, it says, rather than the other. This man, this tax collector, was justified rather than the other. And that comma is necessary because this parable is not just about how a deplorable sinner is saved by God's merciful atoning sacrifice. It's more about how your self-righteous religion is powerless and will do nothing for you. In fact, it's more likely to damn you than deliver you. So maybe you are in here today and you're really proud of your church attendance. And you're really proud about how much you give or, or proud of your conservative values and, and proud that you're not the kind of person that's taking our country to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you carry an aw shucks humility around, but, but contempt for those who sin differently than you do is very natural. It's very real. 
If that's your posture today, I have two words for you. Christ alone. Christ alone. I think church people, goodness, we mean well, but we need to repent of our righteousness. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. We need to, to look away from ourselves. We look, need to look only to the cross. We need to trust in that thing that will actually save us, which is our Lord Jesus. If you've never done that today, maybe you've kind of made religion a game or you've made church attendance um, sort of this side project, never given your whole heart to it, but felt like it was sort of checking a box. I want to just challenge you to look away from yourself, to look away from all of those first-person pronouns that concern themselves with what you have done and with who you are, and look to Jesus today. Call out to him for mercy. Pray to him. It doesn't take a long prayer. We have an example of one right here. Seek him to be the, the sacrifice that you need for your sin so that you could be right with, that, with God. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Him alone, not your goodness, not your puffed-up sense of righteousness. All Spurgeon called your self-righteousness, he called it painted pageantry to go to hell in. You must come as this publican. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, said the hymn writer. Another hymn says, all the fitness he requireth is that you see your need of him. All you need is need. It's a good place to be. All you need is need. But that can be a hard place for a proud person to come to. But the closing promise is very true. If you cannot humble yourself, if you cannot admit your utter inability and look to mercy, you will not be exalted. The way up is the way down. God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. What a beautiful promise. I pray that we can walk in, in this promise, in this spirit, as we lead uh, up to our Easter celebration. That we can be people looking to God, looking to his mercy, because it's the thing that satisfies his justice and makes us right. How can you be accepted by God? Well, you can't, but you can look to Jesus, and he makes you acceptable. Let's go to him every hour of every day. Let's go to him in prayer as well. Father, thank you for <clears throat> this story. Thank you for uh, our Savior, our Lord Jesus, who knows our hearts better than we do, who knows how we try to manipulate ourselves, who knows our sin front to back and loves us to the uttermost saves us, bears the wrath of God in our place. God, put these things on our mind as we begin to think more intentionally about Easter. God, use a passage like this one or others as, as your spirit illuminates our hearts to, uh, to drive us to, to Christ alone, to turn us away from our self-righteousness, from our religion of doing, from the things that we think matter, to only trusting and looking to Jesus. 
as our hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our time of benediction. Before we do that, I want to invite any of you who are guests this morning or any of you that have a ministry need or a question, uh, you can go out these doors and to uh, the west end of the hallway. There's a welcome center there. Somebody will be there to, uh, to help you out, give you any information you might need, and maybe take some information from you so that we can uh, reach out to you at a later date and minister to you uh, as you have a need as well. The only one who can do helpless sinner, sinners any good says this to you, grace, mercy, and peace from our God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in his grace today. You're dismissed.